So as we were sitting <clears throat> quietly together, um, we were all had the opportunity uh, to point in a common direction. It's not the direction that we normally point in in the course of our day. But somehow we intimate, we sense in ourselves a possibility of that pointing being beneficial. And it's not a pointing uh, to the noise factor. It's not a pointing to the manifestations of forms that the mind continually brings forth. It's a pointing to something other than that. It's a pointing to something that ties it all together. It doesn't disturb anything, you might say. But, and ho holds it all, but it cannot be defined by the content of it. Right? It's like looking out into space at night, and you can look at the space, or you can look at the stars that fill the space and make all kinds of narrative around the stars. There's the Big Dipper, the North Star, on and on. But that's not really where the meditation is pointing, is it? Do you see how the principle guides the practice? If it were to name constellations, it'd be a very different meditation, wouldn't it? And yet that is so quickly approached because through the naming of the constellations, we become the knower of those names. We become more defined within the knowing of those names. But when we look into a different direction, into a different dimension. We aren't as fulfilled in one way. And one sense of ourself is not as fulfilled. Because the definitions are not as accentuated. But another component, another dimension, another paradigm is available to us. And we sense that. When we sit down, we sense that. Why would we not, why would we ever sit in quietude? What's the point of sitting in quietude? What's the point of that? It's because there's a sensing that something very rich is being missed in the normal parlance, the normal interactions, the normal communications, the more normal way we invest our life. We sense it, but have we reached a threshold in which we are no longer willing for our lives to be formed merely by the content and expressions we take? Are we willing to look at ourselves as being much more than what we have known ourselves to be? This is the essence of what we've been talking about week after week. In preparation to step into this Satipatthana Sutta. It is the absolute essence of the te teaching. Not the Satipatthana Sutta, the preparation. And some of us are so interested in getting over this preparation and getting into the meat and you've missed the principle. That very strategy is already off base. Isn't that amazing? That we can be so, we can be in so much of a hurry 
to get to something where we can start the, to get to a constellation we know. Get away from this space. And so already, before we enter, our frustration and annoyance assures that we will miss the point. That's how tricky it is. You see, we're not we're just talking Buddhist Buddhism. Any mystical tradition. I don't care where you claim your reference point, doesn't matter to me. It has to be aligned with the principles of the space. Hmm? Well, you can tell that I've been watching further episodes of my cosmology. (laughs) I love it. Because as this cosmological series continues, space is a dynamic. Space is alive. Space grows upon itself. It expands upon itself. The space, the universe, the capacity, the size of the universe is continually expanding. Space is continually expanding. And at the moment of the initiation called the Big Bang, some 13.7 billion years ago, there was no space. There was no time. It had its origin in that moment. And as we sit here in meditation, we look through the manifest. to that origin. That origin is always with us. That's the mystical. That's what invites our hearts out, is because the Big Bang has never left us. And all of the noise since then has filled the spectrums of our inward cosmology and the narratives are long and the stories are great and profound and our trip and our journey has been woeful and burdensome or delightful and easy but what about the origin So as we move into the understanding of mindfulness, the principles must guide that step, that next step. We must understand mindfulness. We, this is the four foundations of mindfulness. We're not going to go into the foundations, how to apply mindfulness, until we understand what mindfulness is. What is this thing? And we have to go very light. We can't Well, I've been practicing tenure, I know what my, no, nope, let's clear it all out. No sophistication here. Let's be innocent. Let's figure out what this is, whether it has any point in our life. And so the homework assignment is very much to that point. It's to take us, it take us to innocence again. And we've been told so much about the values of mindfulness, or perhaps we've read it or applied it or even taught it. But we have to clear all that out. We have to understand this thing from a very, very innocent approach. Or we're going to be contaminated and off mark because the ways we may have been approaching mindfulness has been with a distorted principle. And therefore, we'll just keep right on. Now, those principles, as I've mentioned, it doesn't matter if we define selflessness, which is the guiding principle, as the end of suffering, or stillness, or connectedness, or love. Doesn't, 
I want each of you or the conscious to the unconscious or the unconscious to the conscious doesn't how the, the particular way that you bring yourself forward in this principle it doesn't have to be only from self to selflessness because all of those ways I just mentioned decrease self-definition for instance when you're suffering you're very defined when you're not suffering which is the reason we continue to suffer, is that you're not very well defined. And so we maintain a drama based in our life so that we'll have some sense of being distinct and unique within our life. As difficult and as miserable as that might be. Or if you're noisy, that's how you know yourself, is only by constantly repeating the sense of I, me, and mine and all the facts about it. When we're quiet, those facts dissipate into the space itself. And so from noise to quiet is a perfectly acceptable continuum to march these applications of mindfulness through. Connection, inter disconnected, separation, isolation to connectedness. But when you connect, you have to connect with everything. Not just those things that you like, but also the things you don't like. Connection requires full connection. So when we start moving from disconnection to interconnectedness, all things have to be connected. We're not going to get out of any of these difficulties along the way by choosing what we think is the easiest continuum to slide ourselves on. <laughs> all of them will take us through the same difficulties. right? And all of us will end up not focused upon the manifested world as we know it, but upon the quiet and the stillness that holds that manifestation. All of them. All of them. But one of them may resonate more deeply within you than the others. And so take that. Take that into the application. So when you're applying the application, let us say you're applying it from suffering to not suffering, then the tension you bring to those applications are an increased suffering. Something's wrong. The light bulb should go off. I'm not on my continuum anymore. I've slipped somehow. Something's skewed. How to bring that continuum base, the principles, into the application? Or as we mentioned this last time, last uh, talk on effort. Effort's a, a unique one, and it's the reason I presented it last, is because there is a manual and a, um, a science to the effort, which, uh, when practiced, allows certain qualities and states to arise, which can be very helpful in the dissipation and the continuation of our continuum. But it may seem as if, when we're first applying it, that we are very mechanical and dry in the approach, like being on the breath or steadying our attention upon some physical sensation. It, that reapplication, returning again and again, can feel as if it's extraordinarily difficult and laborsome to continue to bring our attention back. And so, that may feel as if we're doing something wrong, considering that our continuum is from suffering to non-suffering. It feels like this is creating a lot of difficulty for me. But it has to be. There has to be a certain, let's just say, willingness to endure this particular phase of practice, of steadying one's attention. Because if we understand that the mechanics of steadying one's attention, the whole of the practice depends upon that light of our attention being steady so that I can see what it's, the light is lighting upon. And that does require a certain practice and willingness uh, just to persevere. But then there's the whole art of effort. And the whole art of effort is in the discovery and the free-floating uh, not defined 
question or mechanics of a practice, but rather looking very much at the intuitive understanding of what something is and asking questions about going deeper into something and bringing forth one's deepest yearning in relationship to a particular mind and body experience to further understand what that is. And the understanding is the art form. And that can't be taught. That is an intuitive feel of what the next thing one has to learn. And we'll be talking about all of that through the sutta. But we, it's very important to keep our heart attuned to the prize, right? So when we sit down, we know what we're doing. We have a fundamental sense. Sometimes we betray it, but still there's something in us that knows that it's not about the constant jabbering that's going forth in my mind. And that is what I mean by keeping our heart attuned to the prize. Because many of these applications of practice will have their own benefits. Like knowing the constellation has its benefits. But that's not keeping our eyes on the prize. And keeping our eyes on the prize is the practice. So let us start looking at what mindfulness is, understanding mindfulness. Sati, Sati Patana Sutta, Sati is awareness, the application of mindfulness, of the foundation. Sati is awareness or mindfulness. Patana is foundation. So they are the foundations for awareness. Now I, I want to talk a little bit because I want to distinct, make a distinction between mindfulness practice and awareness. And I want to uh, uh, bring the analogy of metta practice as opposed to what metta is, because I think uh, that's within reach of most people here. When we talk about metta, we're talking about intrinsic, in, intrinsic love, that which is uh, in, uh, in all of us, but seems inaccessible because we have so much resistance or contraction in ourselves that keeps that love at bay, or seems to keep that love outside of ourselves. But a, a good understanding of practice is that when I do metta, I start looking for not the differences between myself and the concentric circles of people that I'm using in my metta practice, but I'm looking for commonality. I'm not looking for the resistance factor, what I don't like about you, the judgment factor. I'm looking for what we, what we ha share in common, the common humanity. And love flows through that common channel of acknowledgement. But metta practice is not metta. It's working with the obstructions of that love to come to love so that the love will express itself fully, you see? And many people think, okay, I'm, I'm practicing metta. May you be happy, may you be happy, may you be happy, on and on. But that really isn't metta. Metta is the abiding love that's there after we've done the practice, hopefully. Now, I want to bring in, analogously, mindfulness practice and awareness. Mindfulness practice is not, def I'm not defining mindfulness in the same way I'm defining awareness, any more than I'm defining metta practice in the same way I'm defining metta. Mindfulness practice is an attempt to deal with what is obstructing our mind so that we don't know or can't abide within awareness. Mindfulness has the definition of noticing what's occurring. It's, noticing is a dualistic, it has me and the thing I'm noticing. It's driven by one's own sense of self, 
So in its most subtle form, it's a watching sense of self. But it's not an abiding awareness that is not dualistic. It has a dualism within it, right? And so I'm going to be talking about mindfulness as a practice that we're doing to eliminate the obstructions, the identifying obstructions that keep us from abiding in awareness. Sati was used by the Buddha to mean both mindfulness and awareness. At least I, as far as I am able to understand it. And we have taken mindfulness practice to be the equivalent as well. It is not the equivalent. It is not the equivalent. And I have seen monks spend years, decades, practicing mindfulness and not knowing the difference between the two. Awareness is intrinsic, as love is intrinsic. Awareness is simply the knowing of what's arising. And when we are quiet and when the sense of self is not so predominant within the experience, there is this sense of presence. Presence is the manifestation of living or abiding in awareness. And it doesn't need anything. There's nothing I need to do to make myself more aware. Mindfulness has that tact, that strategy. How do I make myself more aware? How do I get myself back to being aware again? Awareness is a given, like the air is a given. When we start, stop searching for where the air is, it's all around us. And so mindfulness practice is an attempt to, ha- to gain a foothold, a self-serving foothold, because it's It's efforted by the sense of me, through the sense of me. And it's a foothold into something of the, some sense of being present. But it isn't presence. You get it, you getting a sense of what I'm saying? Now, the way mindfulness is often taught, it's taught as being separated from the, separated out as a standalone from the Eightfold Path. As, and that's the way it's being practiced in many of the medical uses, applications for depression, or obsessive compulsive disorder, or just therapy in general. And if mindfulness is used in that way as a standalone, you can be assured that the eye is going to build itself around the sense of mindfulness as it's applied in those, in, in those strategies, within those strategies. Yes, lots will happen. Because anytime you make a part of yourself conscious that wasn't before, there's a tremendous release of energy and exuberation in that awareness and where the dark becomes the light. But unless it's governed by something that holds the sense of I in check, the I will run away with this sense of mindfulness and grow exponentially in relationship to it. And standalone therapies do not govern the eye. They're not meant to. But spiritual mysticism, where we're looking at the depth of the meaning of life experientially, has to be governed. And that's why the Buddha brought forth wise view and wise intention as a governing factor to mindfulness so that it wouldn't run away with itself as an employed, with an employed sense of I. 
And what is wise view? It's what I'm calling the principles. It's knowing where, what mindfulness is ultimately pointing towards. Like when we sit down and we're quiet together. Ultimately we get a sense of where this thing is pointing. Not towards self-acclaim or self-enhancement, but towards something beyond the reach of that manifested, manifested world of form. But when we start an active life of using some applications and doing some different tools and bringing on different exercises, the sense of self is at its, it feels very, it feels like it's in the gym. <laughs> and its muscles are toning up. And we have to be very careful that we stay pointed in the correct direction. So mindfulness is not a standalone. It needs to be constantly realigned with its intention. Now let's look at uh, the foundations of mindfulness. Foundations. What are what, what, foundation? What is that? Why, why are we calling this the foundations of mindfulness? Foundations are the grounding forms through which we open to awareness. They're the, the forms by which mindfulness can grow, understand what is there, and then f release the obstructions to what are there and abide in awareness. And so as we go through the foundations of awareness, they are the grounding forms on which uh, mindfulness can evolve into awareness. But we have to be very sensitive to how we use these things. Again, for instance, the first foundation will be, as we explore it, the foundation of the body. And as soon as we enter that with our attention, there is going to be a narrative about my body that's going to accompany the mindful experience of the physical sensations. And we will all along the way be reinforcing, oh, that's my knee, and that's this, and oh, that's that old injury again, and I don't particularly like that part of my body. And There'll be this constant reforming of a sense of me within the exploration that's supposed to take us out of the sense of me. You get a sense? And so we have to put less emphasis on the truth, seeing the mistruth, seeing the untruth of the identification that will be coming with that insertion into our body. We have to be very, and especially what happens when we get to the mind? You see, each one of these foundations, we have to be very careful what we bring to the discovery of what is there. If we want to be free of it. Now, why would awareness be vital to awakening? Why be aware? If you have never asked yourself that question, I really strongly suggest you do. Don't be afraid that it will all get thrown askew and that you'll mess it all up by asking questions. This thing, you'll find your way by asking questions. Now why should we be aware? I don't, I'm not going to take this on just because the Buddha told me to. What is it that awareness does? Well we begin to see experientially that what, we, what happens is that we awaken out of the unconscious by seeing the unconscious. When the unconscious is not seen, that's the definition of the unconscious. When the unconscious is seen, that's the definition of consciousness. And as we begin to see conditioning, which is the propensity to act from habit unconsciously, as we begin to see 
through mindfulness, through our willing to apply attention, we will make those patterns conscious. What is conscious is now known. Now there are levels of unconsciousness. The first place that we notice is that, no, you know, I'm acting out of habit. But then you begin to also sense the motivation for why you're acting out of habit as we become more conscious. And then you begin to sense the pain of what has led you to be motivated in that direction. And so the sense of becoming conscious is a multiple, multiple level form. We keep finding more consciousness within the unconscious layers. We don't just see it once and then pass on. Okay, I got it now, the body, I got it. Let's go on, what's the next one now? That's, that's the strategy of self. It's not interested in really exploring it to the end. It's interested in checking things off. And so at the same time we're doing all this thing, we have to be very careful, very sensitive, very shrewd in relationship to the strategies of the self, which will have us working comfortably in alignment with the self and against the very way that this, this application is supposed to be going. That's why we gather as a community. And hopefully you have a teacher who knows a little bit about this stuff so that we can begin to point out those strategies as we fall into them. But just to see, I'm going to teach mindfulness, you know. Lord. <laughs> because when you start awakening the unconscious, it doesn't smile at you. It bears its teeth. <laughs> and you better be ready for saber-toothed canines. Because that's what it feels like sometimes. And unless you've experienced that and worked it in alignment with the true path, the true principles within the path, you have no basis on which how to teach somebody else to work and handle something like that when it arises. If the phone could be... So we have to remember and I just I love I love the independent verification of cosmology because we will waver in our doubts. You see, there'll be wavering here. There'll be a sense of like, oh, you know, you'll doubt yourself, you'll doubt your ability to do it, you'll doubt the teacher, you'll doubt, you know, who the Buddha was and why I'm doing this and if it's such an important thing, why come it's not in Christianity or Hinduism? Or There'll be this constant Why can't somebody answer that? <laughs> Thank you. And I really think there's a, there's a way that the mystery of the universe can help us alleviate our doubt. I, I find it to be so uh, for many people. And there's a, there's a beautiful way that when, you, when science has acknowledged something, like that this universe sums to zero, as I was mentioning in a previous talk, or that time and space had a beginning. And then you realize that time and space is the scaffolding on which we assume our life and our narrative. And that when that's called into question, the whole narrative, the whole paradigm begins to shake.
And yet that's what science is pointing towards. And those very truths, physical truths, spiritual truths, are accessible for each of us. Because if the universe sums to zero, each thing sums to zero. If space and time had a beginning, it also can be seen through. And when we realize that the narrative, the constant thinking, is the only indication of time we have, then what lies outside of thought? But the most profound mystery of the universe and we begin to sense just as space has its own vibrancy and dynamic that it grows and that it isn't just space but it's space slash time and that it expands so too, when we step out of thought into awareness, we feel the same dynamic. Awareness is both nothing and something. Right? It has enormous intelligence within it not individual intelligence. And you can sense that. That can be experienced directly. And so the wonders of the universe are as simple as the direction our meditation takes. And when awareness gets entrapped within thought, it gets limited, it gets ratcheted down to just a point of view. That which holds all of thought. When thought is identified with, the awareness is obscured, it can't be seen. And it just takes the shape of the thought, of the word, and so the awareness that fills the universe becomes focused within the definition of a single term. And then the terms build upon terms and words, build upon sentences, and sentences upon story, and a story upon a narrative. And awareness becomes locked in to the paradigm of one's own truth. which has been encased within the words that we have offered it. And we can see why we wish not to step out of it. Into what? Into a void? Everything we know and all of our safety, everything we have, we call familiar in terms of our everyday ease, is located within the grouping of the words and stories we have given and confined our awareness to. Now I find that interesting because it is the solution is so simple. Whether we want the solution or working ourselves up to the point where we no longer want to be embedded within a word, that's the difficulty but not the solution. The solution is pretty step forward. Release the word. But it's because we have dragged ourselves along since time immemorial 
constantly adding a new chapter to our narrative, that our narrative has taken over a life of its own, literally. It's a life of words. It's a life of definition, of purpose and meaning. And it gives our sense of me uh, a whole power uh, spot. And it's only suffering that suffering is the great, is the grace of the universe. Because without that, why would we ever leave it? But it's because the word is not the truth and the limitation is not the complete story that there is a rub. And that rub eventually has us look for solutions to the definition we've given ourselves. And we are here to set awareness free. That's what we're here for. It's been confined to the genie bottle. And it just needs our rub. <laughs> Once it's out, it's out. You cannot push it back in. So someone says, do I want to rub this thing or not? Maybe I'll rub it from my narrative. So you don't actually rub it, you see. You rub it by wording it. So you never actually rub it, but you think you are, because that's how you've done it all your life. And so to be aware of the eye of mindfulness, that it's full of vast tricks and tricks that we have lived so long with that we just assume are the reality of things. That we don't even know that we're doing, going, venturing off, reaffirming the very sense of self that holds us fixed within this paradigm. We don't even realize we're doing that. We just think we're really working this. And it's with innocence that we do that. But we have, to, we have to sober up if we want to know the immensity of awareness. Let me just give you a one sentence, something that I used that was very helpful when an unpleasant, when something unpleasant happens. Because the first strategy the self uses is to try to isolate the unpleasant from itself. And then devise a strategy, strategy to get around that difficulty. And so instead of letting it get into that frame of reference, just simply say to yourself when something unpleasant arises, oh, this is so. This is so. And throughout the many lectures, I would just be offering little expressions that can be very helpful and reorienting ourselves in the direction we seek. Ah, this is so. And mindfulness, mindfulness has the point, 
what it does do very well is it begins to bring conscious awareness to long-established unconscious patterns. That's the first thing. Tremendously helpful. And secondly, it begins to show us that the mind is safer than we thought it was. That it's harmless. Experientially. And that's another tremendous, tremendous advantage that mindfulness gives us. And so we use mindfulness full-heartedly. We don't have to be afraid of it. It's a great tool. We have to be afraid of any tool that has control, that is controlled by me. It's the me, not the tool. And so we will be working with how the tool is shaped by the me. And the first thing that we have to be aware of when we apply mindfulness is to clean it up so that it doesn't have a lot of opinions and judgments in it because that's not coming from the mindfulness. That's coming from the me. And so as, I, as awareness sees something, the mind slips in there with an opinion about. And that's why the attention needs to be bare, B-A-R-E, as because the near enemy of bare attention is opinionation. And so we need to clean up that awareness all the time because it's always back there, isn't it? With a subtle sense of exasperation or annoyance, which is a judgment about what we see. Which, when unobserved, because that's the unconscious part of what we're observing, when left on its own, it will start festering again into a story and a narrative and close that mindfulness off and encase it within a story. So I'm just setting this thing up, right? And you can see why we spent five talks, ten weeks doing this. And we have more yet to go. So are we in a hurry? Right? Yeah? That's the right, shaking your head, no, that's, that's right. <laughs> so we're doing this together, you see? It's a fun. It's like staring out into space and looking back to the origins of the universe. Really, it's literally like that. It's absolutely literally like that. Let's enjoy ourselves. Can we sit for a minute or two? So now, as you sit, look through, you see. Remembering first that everything sums to zero. And so, if you don't move from anything, everything will be of the same essence. And once it's seen from that essence, it does not obscure any longer. And so you have a clear sight, a clear vantage, right through to the origin, to the unconditioned, to that which existed prior to the Big Bang. But the space between is filled with distance. It's filled with expansion. It's filled with time. 
just as the universe is. And we get so lost in the dynamics of the distance and time that the story becomes more important than the origin. So if there are any questions or comments about anything? Yes. Right, no. He, so he's asking about wise effort. I um, would really suggest you go back and listen to the talk on that, which I covered a lot of that uh, on the web. But just to review very briefly, is that we really spoke about two different kinds of effort. The effort, the mechanistic effort, the effort of, of the science of it, where the application of, of coming back and returning again does have a result. It does show itself and the accompanying states of mind that come in around that steadying of one's attention are like witnessing the formation of galaxies. It's just all inspiring. If any of you have seen the Hubble, some of the Hubble pictures of galaxies forming, you are breathless. In the same way, as you begin to work your attention, steadying your attention upon the breath, the accompanying states of mind are breathtaking in terms of what they, the lure of what they provide. And you, very subtly, it's a beautiful way to cash in your chips. You can say, you know, nobody's looking. I'm just going to stay here and just milk this thing because why would I want to, this is what I've always wanted. And some of the states of mind feel like this is what you've always wanted. But there's a, little, there's a little itch back in there somewhere that says finite. Finite. This is finite. This is conditional. Take your eye off the ball, the ball rolls away. Hmm. But I'm still I'm staying here, by God. I don't care what anybody says. Say, <laughs> so well, I'm not going to listen to that one. I'm not going to listen to that counter voice for a while. And some of the enraptured ways that the mind brings forth its subtlety, you, we can get lost for eons. But if we listen to that, this is an it voice in us, voice of honesty, of sincerity, then we're into the art. As soon as we've acknowledged where we're standing and that the mechan mechanical approach to practice serves us with a certain with a certain value but then the limitations start piling up we move to the art of practice not interested in the mechanics not interested in establishing and referencing states of mind not interested in constantly investing more and more into the subtle nuances of samadhi etc etc this is about exploration. This is about discovery. This is about the wonder. There's no wonder in sitting down and cultivating and nourishing and protecting and isolating and, and freezing states. So we begin to think, oh, that's the working of the self. The self is working towards its own benefit. Oh, I get it. I get it. In wonder, in mystery and exploration, it's loose. It doesn't know. It doesn't have a point of reference. It doesn't have an opinion about something. So it's diminished. So there the art begins to come forth because the art is selfless. And so the, these are tr places where most of us trip again and again. So all I can do is point out there's a rock there. You're... you're 
Don't tell me about that rock. Okay. <laughs> Your toe is bandaged because you've hit that rock so many times. <laughs> don't, I don't care. Okay. So I can't, I, all I can do is show you the scars, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, specifically, at least, right. Talking about it within language. Yes. The, the question is about awareness being trapped. What did I mean by that? And can I say a little bit more? Uh, we, we don't lose it, you know. We just, it just becomes confined within the focus we give life, right? And so if we give life a focus through a word, Awareness is like looking through a pea shooter. You know, everything, it's all tunnel vision. And it only shows us what the pea shooter allows us to see. Or red glasses. I, I like that better because it really does show. So you, it's just everything is red, you know, and you think that the world is red, and that you're, but you're wearing the, the glasses called words of red. And when you look, you, say, you confirm redness because you look out through red glasses. And at some point, what mindfulness does, and I think this is a valid point, is it takes the glasses off and you now see the glasses that you're, what you've been looking through. And so that's different than looking through the, the red. You're now looking at the glasses. And so that's a, it's a valuable, interim step between that and putting the glasses down. But if you, the word, a word uh, confiscated universe looks like what most of our lives look like. Look at your life. Opinions and reactions and judgments and story and insulation and self-protection and defense mechanisms. All of that's been established by looking through red glasses. That's not true. None of that's true. And we all have perfect logic for why we need our defense mechanism. But it's all based upon the stories that we've told ourselves. And as we re-examine the issues within those stories, we see they're not fearful any longer when we, when we don't see them through the word anymore. So when we take our glasses off and re-examine the issues, the fear still arises, but when we re-examine them again and again, the fear dissipates. And now we can be free of the fix that the word has given to life, which has confiscated awareness within that fix. Now it's the sea, you know, I mean, it's like a we've, we've been on our little boat and we've made our, but the but suddenly we're looking out and now suddenly we're, the sea's all around us. And at some point there's a sense of, whoa, that I've been so insulated, so contracted. I haven't even realized that this sea, and then we've stepped out of the word for a moment. And stepping out of the word for a moment confirms the beauty of the universe. And you can never forget that. We can never forget that even as you hunker back down in your bunk. You can't forget it. And most of you, is the reason you keep coming back is that you've tasted it some. And you can't forget it, can you? And you never will. And so we might as well go, just get rid of this thing real quick. Let's just go fast. Instead of, you know, like, oh, no, the bunk feels so good. And I, I mean, I, you know, I can't, it's harder for me to talk to people who have never glimpsed it, like at the beginning classes, because they don't know what the hell you're talking about. But most of you have. And as much as, as hard as you've tried to push it away, 
You can't. See, this much of the genie is out of the bottle. Okay, all. Uh, say.